yesterday for signing up to the life groups. And uh, I don't know, what about that fasting group? Yeah. Joe's excited about that. And <laughs> trip is today's the last day to sign up for that as well. And so uh, we do need five, a minimum of five, a maximum of ten. And so if you're interested, don't miss the opportunity to sign up and come with us to Japan. It's going to be an awesome trip. All right. Well, we're going to jump into the message. And we're going through our core values throughout the whole year, spending a quarter on each one of the four core values that make the, the acronym that we use, uh, FIRE, the, that we're, we're here to spread the fire of God's love. And FIRE stands, the, the F stands for the Father Heart Message. So we talked about that at the beginning of the year. And then we talked about intimacy, our intimate connection with uh, the Lord and uh, with one another. And uh, now we're on the R, which stands for restoration, and it includes the issues of getting ourselves healed up. And I believe in physical healing. How many believe that God still heals today? All right. So all of you who didn't raise your hand, maybe your arms are broke or something, we can pray for that. All right. You know, we believe that God can heal, and uh, we pray for that, we believe that. And, but He can also heal our minds, He can heal our emotions. Okay? And so God wants us to be emotionally whole. And this quarter we're talking through the of restoration. And today we're going to be talking about generational sins and blessings. And our purpose for this quarter is to more or less introduce you to ideas that we use. Mike's. There we go. So just mute the other one, eh? Okay, great. How many love technology? When it works, it's great. But when it doesn't, it's a pain. So we're going through different principles that we have learned in Scripture and really introducing you to some of the ideas that are critical or core to the restoration ministry. And uh, today we're going to be talking about generational sin and the idea, and and blessing mainly about the sins, (laughs) uh, the idea is can sin be inherited? And can blessing be inherited? And the simple answer is yes. And this is not something that is preached often or taught often in churches, so you may not be familiar with this idea, but it's a very ancient idea. It's very um, integral to the Christian faith and has been all through the centuries. Uh, In order to understand this, though, we need to unpack it and kind of unwrap it and, and dig into some of the scriptures that talk about it, because I want you to see the biblical basis for this, and I want to remove any... Um, mysticism or spookiness, because uh, when we say generational curses, it just sounds wacky, right? And we want to remove that and see it in Scripture, because it's when we see it in Scripture, then we can see how Scripture tells us to respond to it. Uh, you know, it said we sang the song, "I am royalty. I have destiny. I'm going to change history." Right? And we get all excited about that, and that's true. <clears throat> but this teaching kind of delves with uh, delves into the the other side of that you know we can sing i am royalty now because we had a past where we weren't royalty you know i have destiny now because we had a past that uh, was cursed really to failure and 
as we examine Scripture, we can see how we can get free from the things that linger from our past and live the identity that God's actually called us to, which is an identity of royalty, an identity of destiny. So we're going to look at a story from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is filled with pictures. The New Testament is filled with principles. But both the pictures and the principles are to lead us into a relationship and understanding the person of Jesus Christ. So we just want to look at this picture. It's not really the text of my sermon, but I want you to be introduced to this idea. And it's a vivid depiction of the idea of generational sins. And it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And it's the story of King David and Bathsheba. As you may remember, it was the spring of the year at the time when men go to war. <laughs> Aren't you glad some cultures change? Uh, I didn't go to war this spring. But uh, in their, their day, that's when armies went out to, to wage warfare. It was at the beginning of the year. And he, the, King David sent out his armies under his general. But for whatever reason, and the Bible doesn't set, tell us, he chose to stay behind this year. Maybe he felt comfortable enough. He didn't have to prove himself. He's just going to take this one out, off and, and stay at home. And one day he was on his rooftop, which in those days, that's where you went to relax. It was like our, what we would use our patio or porch for, just kicking back, enjoying the day up on the rooftop. And he walks over to the edge and, wow, there's his neighbor's wife taking a bath. And she's a knockout. And so he covets his neighbor's wife. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. And then he says to his soldiers, uh, standing guard, he says, Hey, uh, who is that lady living next door? And they find out who he is. And so he sends some messengers and he brings her into the royal home, into his castle, whatever it was, his dwelling place. Now, we don't know if King David forced himself on Bathsheba. But I know that in today's world, if a government official summoned someone into their residence and then had sex with them, they could be prosecuted for rape because that's using force. And certainly, David had the power to make her come into his home. And so it doesn't actually say that. The Bible says that David took her and she went with him. And so she may have been willing. It doesn't really matter. He used his position of authority wrongfully to violate the sanctity of marriage. And so then they have sex. And uh, she goes home. And David thinks, oh, gosh, you know, who knows what he was thinking at that point. But then a few days, weeks later, we don't know. He gets a little note. And he opens it up. The saying, I'm pregnant. And so now David's got a big problem. Bathsheba's pregnant, and everybody's going to find out because her husband, Uriah, is at war where I should have been. So he gets a bright, bright idea. So I'll have Uriah come home. And he'll sleep with his wife, and everybody will think it's their kid. But Uriah comes home, reports on the war, and David said, great, have a few days off. And Uriah, instead of going home to be with his wife, sleeps with the other soldiers that are stationed in Jerusalem. And David said, why did you do that? The next day he called him in, why didn't you go home? He said, how could I sleep in my home with my wife in comfort when my fellow soldiers and my commander are out at war? 
And David, I'm sure, was cut to the heart because <laughs> here he was uh, doing that very thing. And so that night, he decides, well, I'll get him drunk. And literally, David had him come over, gave a feast, got Uriah drunk, and thought, certainly he'll sleep with his wife tonight. And sure enough, Uriah didn't. He stayed with the soldiers. And so David came up with another plan. He said, okay, Uriah, you need to go back. Here, I'm going to give you a, a special orders to your commander. Take this and give it to Joab. Well, what was written on that paper was tell, uh, a note telling Joab to set Uriah up, have him go to the front of the army where the fighting is the worst, and then pull back so that he is killed by the enemy. And that's basically what happened. Um, there was a place where the battle was uh, particularly strong. Joab sent Uriah there, and he was killed in battle. And um, so there was deception by David uh, trying to cover the sin. There was sexual sin, which led to Uriah's death, his murder by the hand of the Ammonites. And then David thought, okay, it'll all be well because nobody will find out. Bathsheba grieved, and then he ended up marrying her. But then the prophet Nathan came and paid a visit. And Nathan confronted David and said, How, uh, said, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. That's a consequence of David's action. The sword shall never depart from your house. That meant his descendants, his lineage. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversaries against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. And David replied to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now in this story, we just have that one sentence. But in other places in Scripture and in the Psalms, we see that David really grieved this sin. He recognized the severity of it. And in fact, uh, afterwards, he spent uh, days interceding for the life of the child uh, and was weeping. And so this was a genuine, heartfelt, to the core, acknowledgement of sin and repentance. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And in response to that uh, confession, confession and repentance, Nathan replies to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, understand, this was under the Old Covenant. The the actual penalty for what David did was death. It would have been legal for him to be executed for this sin. But God spared him from that. And so we see that David's repentance was genuine and his forgiveness was genuine. God forgave him. He was forgiven. However... Because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who was born to you shall surely die. So even though David was repentant and was forgiven, and himself had certain consequences removed, there were still consequences to the sin that he committed, and particularly consequences in his family line. First of all, the baby dies, regardless of the prayer. Here's the death of the innocent as a result of the parent's sin. 
And you have to kind of deal with that theologically, folks. And I hope this message makes you walk out and struggle with that. How can a loving God do that? It's precisely because of his love. We can't go into that. Um, furthermore, Ammon, Amnon, one of David's sons, later rapes Tamar, which was one of David's daughters. They were, they were related by different mothers. It was the way it worked back then. And so Amnon, years later, gets a crush on his half-sister because she's a knockout. She's beautiful and he can't, he's, he can't stop thinking about her. And he devises a plan where he fakes being sick. Deception. Covet. Covetousness. Lusting. He fakes being sick and he actually asks his father to arrange for Tamar, his sister, you know, uh, to come and, and make food because maybe he'll be able to eat if she made me some food because she makes just the best corn cakes or whatever. And so he sets up this whole deception. While she comes to feed him, he grabs her and she says, Stop, brother. Ask the king and we can be married. But because of his obsession with the lustful intentions he rapes her anyway and then he despises her because he, he the shame comes on here and so the same sequence of sin repeats itself in David's uh, son and then David's other son Absalom who's Tamar's full brother is is enraged by what happens and the fact that David didn't do anything is another consequence because here he sees his son doing basically the same sin that he did how could he react? And so his permissiveness, he didn't in intervene with Amnon and defend Tamar. Absalom, David's other son, uh, becomes enraged and ends up murdering his brother, Amnon. And that, so there's a whole story behind that, includes deception. Later on, Absalom leads a, rebelling, a rebellion causing David to flee the city. And while David's gone... Absalom actually takes all of uh, David's concubines, which was his wives, uh, some of his wives, I can't explain a concubine, but he, they were technically wives of David, up to the rooftop, just like Nathan prophesied, and sleeps with them all to bring shame on his father. And so that prophecy was fulfilled. Now understand, uh, you know, most of the time we think of these prophecies as though God was particularly choosing specific things to happen out of, you know, whatever reason God might have. But he's just saying, these, this is going to be the consequences of your actions. This is what's going to happen. Don't you see what's, what you've opened up? And it actually happened. And this picture is to teach us a lesson. Uh, we see later on that um, even uh, Solomon, who is a good man and full of wisdom, ends up being entrapped by the same sequence of sin coming through marriage and, and sexual. The area of sexuality brings him into deception, which leads him to uh, fall uh, uh, away from the Lord, from his uh, purity of his relationship with the Lord. And the whole history of the nation is just uh, replete with uh, incidences of the kings falling uh, to deception and sexual sin until the end, the the entire nation is brought into captivity. Well, that's a picture where we see the direct um, uh, inheritance of sinful behavior patterns in the children. Well, let's look at a bigger picture, and that's a picture of Adam and Eve. Uh, and I think we can all agree that we all sin as a result of their sin. Right? 
We sin because Adam and Eve sin. And so the very first story in the Bible is that parents who sin influence their children to sin. And in fact, the whole condition of the human race is because of a generational curse. Romans 5 talks about that. It says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Just sums that whole idea up in one sentence. Or in a New Living Translation, verse uh, 18 uh, adds this. It says, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Paul actually uses the idea of inherited sin through Adam to demonstrate and to prove how we can now inherit righteousness through Jesus Christ. Okay, so the first condition is, is he, he's assuming we all understand we inherit sin. Well, in the same way that we inherit sin, we can inherit this new righteousness that comes through Christ. And that's the promise of the Gospel, that we have freedom from the inherited sin because we can enter into a relationship with Christ. Because of our relationship with Adam, we all have sin. We experience death. We experience condemnation. But through relationship with Jesus, we have the opportunity, literally, to change family lines. Wouldn't you like to be able to do that in the natural? Just like automatically be adopted into Bill Gates' family? (laughs) You know, assuming that he gives good inheritances. I don't know. Some of those guys don't give their kids any money to prove it's something. Uh, We want to change family lines. Um, And we can in the spirit. And we can replace inherited iniquity with inherited righteousness. Paul talks about the same idea in Galatians chapter 4. He says... And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent His Son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent Him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that He could adopt us as His very own children. And so, what we see here is that Uh, Christ came for the reason. The reason Christ came was that we were enslaved because we were children under the law, under sin. Uh, It goes on, it says, Because we are His children, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. What's changed is this inward relationship. We now look to the Father as, uh, as our Abba. We look to God as a Father, a loving Father. We're no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are His child, God made you His heir. That means that if we are an heir of God, we rightfully inherit His nature, His character. There's been a, a change in position. Now, uh, this happened... Uh, uh, historically for the human race when Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. That was the right time when Christ came and died for the ungodly. Right? And we understand that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and because of that historical fact, we now have access to grace. We can come in. Uh, he made the way where we can come into right relationship. But listen, that same uh, time needs to come for each individual. 
You as an individual need to come to the right time when Jesus comes and becomes Lord of your life. Does this make sense? Like it happened in the course of human history. But just because Jesus died 2,000 years ago on the cross doesn't mean that everybody's free from sin. Right? I mean, objectively, He won the battle. He won the war. 2,000 years ago. But I'm not free until I personally encounter Jesus Christ and the right time comes for me. That's the time when you accept Him as Lord and Savior, when you acknowledge your sin before Him and you yield Him, you bow before Him, and He becomes your Lord. All right, That's the right time. But even then, okay, does that mean you're suddenly free from all sin? Huh? Never sin again? Never have a lustful thought? I wish. The truth is, you never have to sin. The power of sin is broken. But there's this stuff that we carry from the past. And you know, a lot of the stuff we don't even know about. Because you inherited it. Right? So once we come into relationship with God, we have to understand that He deals with the stuff of our past. And we see this in His in the Ten Commandments even. Alright, I want to uh, expose this a little bit more. Because um, most Christians that I talk to have a hard time believing that generational sin still has an effect. Are the Ten Commandments still God's Word? Did He get rid of them? No, Jesus said all the more, right? Well, right in the Ten Commandments... <clears throat> It refers to this generational issue. I didn't put this on the screen, but I'm going to read. It says, this is uh, Exodus chapter 20. It says, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Again, this is about identity. Just as He brought the Israelites out of slavery with the intention of bringing them into freedom, He brings us out of slavery to sin and darkness in the world with the intention of bringing us into freedom, into sonship, into being heirs of God. And then He goes on to describe what that's going to look like. And this is what we call the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before Me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness uh, of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, a jealous God. And then most people just skip this. It's not put in the Ten Commandments when we, when we teach our children to recite these. <laughs> Probably intentionally, right? Because we don't want them to, to know that they're going to pay for our sins. <laughs> I gotta see your faces, <laughs> right? We don't teach our kids to recite um, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who keep my commandments. A thousand generations. But all you see in this is that this is part of God's law, but it's also part of God's character. All right, He put this into the Ten Commandments because it's true. It's a dynamic that affects you and me and every man, woman, and child on planet Earth. And as Christians, as, as the ones who are, are, represent Christ's freedom in this adoption, we need to understand this and know how to work through generational issues. Uh, just like we don't throw away, you shall have no other gods, we shouldn't throw away this idea that the sins of the 
parents are visited on the children. I like in the New Living Translation, it says, I lay the sins of the parents upon the children. The entire family is affected. The entire family is affected. We saw that in David's, David's life. Now listen, David's sons knew this scripture. The priests may have preached it, but they didn't apply it. Okay? They didn't uh, understand, and, and for whatever reason, they didn't uh, realize that, oh my, I have to be extra careful against the ways that my parents sinned, because there's, there's a propensity, if you'd like, uh, toward that same sin. Let, let's go on. Technically, sin, or the actual act itself, uh, wrong behavior or wrong attitude, is not something you inherit. Okay? Which means uh, you are not forced to sin. You've never been forced to sin. When you, when you stand before uh, God in the final judgment, you know, there's no excuses. Every time you did it, you chose. Nor can you blame your parents for your sin. This is in no way uh, saying that you can blame your parents or your ancestors for a particular sin. That's not what this is about. Nor are you guilty of their sin. Or your, uh, your parents or grandparents or ancestors. You don't bear their guilt. Uh-huh. And one more thing, the idea is that we inherit iniquity. And iniquity can be translated sin, but it's a particular word that has to do with a, a kind of a deeper understanding. Uh, rather than the act of disobedience, it's the heart condition. And the Kilsteras, who actually wrote the book on this, uh, speak of it this way. Iniquity is a heart condition, the inner tendency of man to break God's heart. And I love that description. Because it's not just breaking God's law. And if you understand God's law, God's law is simply the revelation of God's heart. And so, iniquity is the tendency that we're born with to break God's heart by breaking His laws. God created mankind for love, companionship, and fellowship. He wanted and still desires a love relationship, love relation with us. But it has to be on His terms, His conditions. After all, He is God. He gave us the privilege of free will so we can freely choose under His conditions to, fo- uh, to love Him and acknowledge Him as Father. When Adam and Eve chose to make their own decision about God's requirement regarding eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they moved into disobedience or rebellion. This tendency of the heart to rebel has been with us ever since. Sin has its root in the heart condition of iniquity and rebellion. Sin, the specific acts of disobedience, is the outworking of this heart tendency or this iniquity that we find inherited from generation to generation. Well, if we inherit iniquity in the general sense, doesn't it make sense that we may also inherit iniquity in specific ways? And that's really the point of today's message, is that we can inherit specific sinful patterns, just like we saw in David's family. We know that there's biological traits that we receive from our ancestors. Is it that much of a stretch to acknowledge that we also may inherit spiritual or soulish traits from our parents and grandparents? And just take a second to think about this. Everything about you 
you inherited from your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, right? How tall you are, for the most part. You know, uh, uh, you know, maybe maybe not how big you are, but it, it has an effect. I can I can say this is no, I can't because my my parents were skinny. <laughs> but my hair color, what it used to be, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, and what it is now. My facial, uh, my skin color, right? My eye color. So many things we inherit in the natural. And guess what? The natural exists to teach us about the spiritual. And we apply that to so many things. But somehow we forget to apply that. Oh, wait a minute. It's personal. And so if you've inherited all your physical characteristics from your natural parents, don't you think maybe your soul and your spirit was also influenced through that generational line? And I'm saying yes. That's exactly what happened. And it, and it still has an effect on you. <clears throat> Uh, and we hear it, and in, in it's actually commonly accepted. It's weird that I have to spend a whole message to convince you something that you already believe, but you don't, under, you don't see it from the biblical perspective. And so maybe, maybe many of you already believe this. I don't know. Some of you don't. <laughs> I, I shouldn't say that, maybe. <laughs> um, we hear this in our language. So he's just like his dad, right? Or the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You're just like your mother. These are phrases that are in our language because there's an acknowledgement that there's an inherited aspect to behavior. The the good news is is that the Bible gives us a way to deal with this. Scripture gives us a way to be free. Um, If our ancestors gave in to specific sinful patterns, then you may be influenced to sin in a similar way. Um, and the Bible says that this is f- to the third and fourth generation. Now, that actually means there's 30 people's sins. Could you hand out one of those to everybody? I think we have enough for everybody. The Bible says in the Ten Commandments that the sins of 30 people has some form. Now, we can't quantify this, like exactly how much. But the Bible says they're, they're laid upon you. They're going to visit you. Think about that. Think about the sins of one person being put on you. Think about your sins now being put on your children. And just like, you know, inherited traits can skip a generation, this can happen in the spirit too. My father died of a kidney disease that he inherited from his mother who died of the same kidney disease. All right? Saw them both die of it. And all, me and my siblings were all tested. And thankfully, I don't have the, the, the gene. So I'm free, and my lineage is free. But if I had the gene, then I might get it, or my kids might get it. And you think, well, that's just random. And we're like, yeah, it is, isn't it? So you can see this pattern in people's lives uh, where sometimes it's, Directly, and sometimes it skips a generation or two. But the idea is you identify uh, the sinful behaviors and you deal with them according to Scripture and you can have full freedom. Now, the good news is that 
blessings are also generational, but I'm not going to preach on that because um, I don't have time. <laughs> and most of us struggle with generational sin. But listen, it's powerful, and I've seen it. When people live righteously, their children start off in a better place, and you just see blessing going through uh, a family line, and it goes to a thousand generations. So when you love God, you're affecting a thousand generations. When you hate God by by acting in ways that is contrary to his nature, then you're uh, bringing uh, iniquity on the next three to four generations. So how do we deal with it? This is it. This verse was right in the, in the law. They had it all along. This is actually in the summary of uh, God's word talking to the, God's people. After they get into the promised land, he says, you're going to sin. You're going to come under condemnation. You're going to come under slavery. You're going to have consequences. But this is how you break the consequences. He says, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, if then... Their uncircumcised heart is humbled, and they make amends for their iniquity. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. And it's mentioned many other places in Scripture, but this is the most clear place where the consequences of rebellion are, are shown, and then... He says, to break free from those consequences, this is what you have to do. The paper I handed out is a list of sins and sinful lifestyle patterns or evidences of sinful uh, lifestyles that show up. And so if we were actually having a ministry session with you as an individual, you'd go through and fill out. And the column A is if you've seen that in any of your ancestors, going back some, you know, as far as you can remember. And then columns with the S, the second column, is that, is that sin in your life? And you just go through and check all of those. And the reason I wanted you to see this list is because there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff. And this is not an exhaustive list. And so if people had this, if your ancestors had any of this stuff in you, it's an influence that's pushing on your soul. Alright? And God wants you to be free from it. Okay? And the way to get free is to confess it. And to confess the sins of your... It's the same way you get free from any sin. It's just confession. All right, real quickly, I want to explain it. If we confess our sins and our sins of our fathers and we humble ourselves, he will remember his covenant. That is, he remembers that we're part of his family. It's not like he forgot. He brings it to mind. Our confession brings us into right alignment with the covenant promise. This is called identification repentance because we identify with our ancestors and repent on their behalf as well as our own. Okay, it's a form of intercession. Not intercession for our forefathers. You can't pray for dead people. They're already dead. All right? <clears throat> you're interceding for yourself, and you're interceding for your descendants. Uh, confessing the sins of previous generations is not taking responsibility for their iniquity, but acknowledging and confessing their iniquity. Does that make sense? So in other words, it's not like you did it, but you're saying, hey, I disagree with that. All right? And it's simply agreeing with God. So, a perfect example is slavery. How many here have owned a slave? Yeah, none of us, right? But does that automatically make us free from any consequence of slavery? And I would say no, right? Because we're of a race that practiced slavery for generations. And even if I did not 
personally have any ancestors that own slaves. I was part of that system. But when I step out of that and say, hey, wait a minute, I acknowledge that slavery is wrong. And I renounce that. I think there was a mistake. And I, I break that off from my life. And I just want to communicate to everyone that I disagree with that. Right? It, it, it differentiates me. Otherwise, people are like, well, you look like the people that you look like them. You talk like them. So you probably believe what they believe. We do this the same thing with a lot of cultural things. Because we're in a group, people just assume, well, you're part of what the group thinks and believes. But if you step out of that group and go, wait a minute, no, 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 no. I'm not that way. I realized that was a mistake. It's identifying and confessing, I'm not that way. And when you declare that in the spirit realm, that, that frees you from the influence of that the demonic influence, the worldly influence, the soulish influence, it breaks that off. And the covenant that God remembers for us as Christians is not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the covenant of Jesus' blood that has the power to free you from every sin. Right? Okay, so this is what we're going to do. <clears throat> you can play if you want. Um, <clears throat> we're just going to go through and, and, and pray through the sin that I know is in everybody's family line. All right. Trust me. Yeah. Okay. Well, I took an easy one. It's the sin of unbelief. All right. Not believing God is rejecting his authority, rejecting his personhood. And that's a sin. And that's a sin in my life. It's a sin in my parents' life. Nobody's, nobody's lived a perfect life of faith. And so the first step is confession. And so you just confess uh, this sin. And so let's just do that right now. So if, let's play a little quieter. So turn down a little bit. Let's just go pray. I'll open a prayer and then I'll lead you in a prayer. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we believe that you have freedom from every sin. Jesus, you took the curse for us. And we're just going to yield all of these curses to you so that we can walk free. And Lord, we come to you in in Jesus' name today, to break off the power of the sin of unbelief. And so we all together say, I confess to you, Lord, the sin of unbelief in my life and my forefathers' lives. I declare forgiveness over them for this past sin. I forgive them for setting me up in this area. And I repent and ask forgiveness for entering into the sin of unbelief and to yielding to in any ungodly influence of unbelief. I repent of unbelief. And I ask your forgiveness of unbelief. In Jesus' name. In every part of my life where it has revealed itself. And I renounce unbelief. I renounce all involvement with any sin or ungodly unbelief. I renounce the power of unbelief in my life, in my children's lives. In my family line, 
In Jesus' name, that sin no longer has consequence for me or mine. And I appropriate. Okay, let me just explain that. Appropriate is reaching and grabbing something. Reaching and grabbing. I appropriate. I take the power of the cross. Say it out loud like you believe it. I take the power of the cross to stop all judgment of unbelief and to cleanse me from the sin of unbelief and all unrighteousness associated with it. In Jesus' name, I receive faith. A greater measure of faith. A greater portion of faith. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Alright, thank you. Well, what you do is, in a prayer session, you actually do that for, for every one of those that you indicate. And you go, really? And I go, really? Really? And if you haven't, you have to do it out loud. Demons can't read your mind. If you haven't, then that influence, that propensity to sin, it'll wear you down. But if you do this, you'll find greater freedom. And sometimes you have to do it over and over again. All right. We have a prayer team up here who can minister to you. If you've never accepted Jesus, they can lead you in a prayer. Say, when you walk out those doors, you know for certain you're in right relationship, that you've changed family lines, and that you now have an inheritance of righteousness from God and no longer are, are bound. Uh, uh, you can be free. Or if you need to... Uh, 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 what do you call it? When you get, when you recommit, there you go. <laughs> you need to commit your life or recommit your life. Or if you have any sickness, or any uh, issues in your life, they can pray for you and, and you're going to get healed. On this side, we have our prophetic team, people trained to hear God's voice. Uh, and they just minister to one or two each uh, Sunday. And so we do strongly encourage that. It's a really powerful ministry. Otherwise, stand up. Find somebody you don't know and greet them and tell them you're glad they came to church. God bless you. You are dismissed.